The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Is there anyone here who likes true-false tests? Any fan of true-false tests? There's a couple. Um, true-false tests can be difficult because I would think I would like true-false tests. I like trivia, so I like facts. Um, but true-false tests can kind of be difficult sometimes because the wording can be tricky. They'll use, you know, never in there. and It'll just throw you off. Um, but I, I wanted to show you a picture, maybe you've seen this, of a, someone who cracked the code of true-false tests, although they got all the answers wrong. But have you guys ever seen this before? Yeah, no off on the genius switch with this kid. Um, and you can look at it a little bit closer. Every single answer says both true and false. So it's kind of a T, but it's kind of an F. It's an R, but it, it's also an A. The U is an L and an S, and bonus, there's an E in both words, which was great. Um, I just thought this, I thought this was genius. I loved that they got all the answers wrong, too. Um, But the reason I'm talking about true-false tests is because uh, with true-false, there's a right and a wrong, a yes and a no, and there's one way to understand things. We've been looking so far this quarter um, at metaphors, and metaphors are a lot different. There are lots of different ways to understand metaphors. There's lots of different approaches that you can take um, in talking about whether or not something is something else. The clouds are a blanket, um, or the clouds are like a blanket. It is an example of a metaphor. And that concludes our English 101 lesson. But we've been looking at the I am statements of John, Um, six statements that Jesus makes about himself in the book of John. And so far we've looked at, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And tonight we're going to look at John 15, which says, Jesus says, I am the vine. A valuable tool when you're reading scripture is to first ask, what does this mean? But also to ask, why is it being said this way? And if you think about it, a metaphor is a lie. It's simply not true. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are not salt. You do not make my breakfast eggs taste better if I sprinkle you on them. I am not light. I don't illuminate a room when I walk in it, contrary to what my Gma says about me. <laughs> so why was Jesus so fond of metaphors? When we first asked the question, it seems odd because they are not precise at all. But think about this. Metaphors do something that is at the heart of the gospel itself. They require our participation. Jesus is involving the hearer in what's being said. Close your eyes for a second and think about the concept, I am the good shepherd. What do you see? You get a picture in your head of a shepherd, and it begins to be a story that involves you. It involves us. It pulls us in. We are active with metaphor. We're not passive. 
Now, the people leading the charge against Jesus, you can open your eyes, the people leading the charge against Jesus at the time, this time in Jerusalem were the Pharisees, and they were people that were obsessed with pre- precise language, exact regulations because of their commitment to the truth. And it was language that was very impersonal. Jesus, on the other hand, was no less committed to the truth And he used language that was intensely relational and participatory. The way in which Jesus described himself to us involved us as hearers. So we're going to take a look at another one of these metaphors tonight. But before we do that, let's stop a minute and pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for the ways that you have drawn us into relationship with you. That we understand you more Because you have involved us in understanding you more. God, I pray that your words would be present tonight. The words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Holy Spirit, fall afresh on us in this place. In your name, amen. So let's take a look at the I am statement that most specifically includes us. Uh, We're picking up scripture in John 15, which this is the middle of what's called the Thursday night discourse. Jesus has just spent time with his disciples in the upper room. um, And, excuse me, he has washed their feet and he's had the last supper with them. And now he's walking the streets of Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they're going, he's teaching them what they need to know about himself. So this is John 15, starting at verse 1. I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. As I mentioned before, what I first notice about this I am statement is that it involves us. It's one of the only statements um, where Jesus not only talks about who he is, but who we are as well. I am the vine, you are the branches. And God the Father is the vine keeper, caring for both the vine and the branches. In the original Greek, the emphasis is placed on the personal pronouns. Jesus says I a lot in chapter 15 because he emphatically wants us to know, I, I am the real vine. Why would Jesus refer to himself as a vine? Well, if you read in the Gospels, you know that Jesus often will use agricultural um, understanding so that the common person, someone who wasn't educated necessarily, would understand who he said he was. So that makes sense. But there's also a precedent from the Old Testament 
if you've been here, uh, if you've been around, or around here at all, you know that I love the Old Testament. You probably get sick of me talking about it, but I think this is so cool. Several times in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is referred to as a vine, but it is always referred to as a vine gone wrong. So I have an example from Jeremiah chapter 2 of one of these times where it's a vine. This is God talking to the nation of Israel. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? So it wasn't just random that Jesus chose this. Here Jesus claims in person to finally be the true vine that will connect Israel to God forever. He says, I am the real one that you've been looking for. I am the real vine. Our culture that we find ourselves in 2015 longs for what's authentic, for reality, for what is real, probably more than anything else. I meet with so many college students or core group leaders who are ministering to college students, and the thing that is concerning them most, what they're looking for in life or in relationship or in a future career, it almost always has something to do with authenticity, with being real. Jesus is making these I am statements to let us know that if we know Jesus of Nazareth, we know the true core of reality. In verses 4 and 5, he gives us a little bit... Um, of a better understanding of that. He says in those verses, Jesus, remain in me. Jesus says, remain in me, and I will remain in you. Abide in me. A better translation, and I think the message actually translated this, translates it this way, is Jesus is saying, make your home in me. Jesus wants us to live our lives with him. And he's not some passive inviter who's awaiting our move before he waits and says, what are they going to do? Okay, now I'll invite them again. No, he's the initiator and the inviter. Before we're even aware of the invitation, Jesus turns to us in grace and awaits our response. His love prompts ours. Now let's stop a minute and think about this. Consider this. How does that sound to you? Jesus wants to live with you. Jesus wants to move in with you. Moving is the worst, right? As college students, I know that you either just finished moving or you're getting ready to move or you're considering, okay, so now where can I move, right? I went to school here. You just bounce around the U District from place to place. That's just kind of how it is. Especially when you're trying to find someone to help you move, that can be impossible. Hey, can you help me move on Saturday? Oh, maybe, which means no. Or, (laughs) oh, I'm kind of down with something. Can't do it. Or, sorry, I gave up moving for Lent. Uh, Or I would, but suddenly my arms don't move. It's just the weirdest thing. (laughs) If you've been around, if you've been around the U District the last week of August, it is a mover's paradise. It's crazy because most leases, I think, go September one to August thirty first. And this year, I actually moved at that at that time myself, and so I was trolling the streets of the U District, like up and down, looking on the streets because there is so much stuff. Right, every street is lined. With so much stuff, it's, you know, a forager's paradise. And I'd come back to the office and I'd be like, church, I found a dining room table. (laughs) Or I found a microwave. And I did find a microwave. The only buttons that work are 170 and start. But if you need to heat something for a minute 70 or seven minutes, I'm golden. (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, that's what the median looks like typically last week of August, which is really appealing. Um, <laughs> but I think we can agree most of what is left on the side of the street is junk. It's out on the street for a reason. When we think about Jesus making his home with us, I think most of us get anxious. We start thinking, okay, well, that means I'm going to have to move some stuff around. Need an interior decorator to come in and make it look all good. We're fearful we have to get everything sorted out. But Jesus doesn't want us to get it perfect so we can impress him. He wants to come into our lives as is so he can get rid of what needs to be gone. There's a possibility that Jesus might say, wow, there is a lot of crap in here. But we don't have to do the moving. If we allow Jesus into our lives, he will move what needs to be moved. He will get rid of the things that we need to get rid of. He will get all of the junk, the sin, the self-centeredness, the self-hatred, and he will put it out on the street where it belongs. The fact that Jesus wants to wants us to live with him, and he wants to move around what needs to be moved out of our lives. This is a key theological point. And if you tune me out, if you haven't heard anything I've said up to this point, um, listen to this. When he says, abide in me, and I will abide in you, Jesus is asking that our lives not only stand for Jesus, but that we realize our lives are from Jesus. He is calling us not to hold on to him as tightly as we can, but he's calling us to allow ourselves to be held by him. When he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, he's saying the vine allows it, uh, the branch allows itself to be held by the vine. The branch allows itself to be held by the vine. Jesus says the branches that aren't bearing fruit will be cut off, which we can now paraphrase if you're not being real. And even those that are bearing fruit, that are being real, the gardener prunes and and cleanses, cutting back what needs to be taken away, the junk that needs to be taken out. Now, at first, that seems harsh. Why would the gardener do that? Why Why would he do something so seemingly harsh? Now, I don't claim to be a master gardener, but I do have this plant that I've had for 12 years. Um, I have a picture of it. I've moved cross-country with it. It moved with me from New Jersey to California, then from California to Seattle. And yes, it is currently being held together by a pencil and a rubber band, but still might not be winning any green thumbs. But I have to say, I'm really impressed with how long I've kept this plant around. And I can't, part of me can't believe I just showed you a picture of my plant. True or false? Janie is single, right? Uh, Maybe this is why. And if you didn't know that, I think I just confirmed it. Here's my plan I've had for 12 years. His name is Stan. Anyways. um, Point being, I don't claim to be a master gardener, but I do... I do love flowers. I love flowers. And one thing that you have to know in gardening is that... um, To make your flowers bloom, you have to do what's called deadheading... You have to pop off the the shriveled up dead flower blooms, and it leaves kind of this ugly looking stem. But if you do it right and frequently enough, you will have just an incredible amount of flowers and blooms throughout the entire season that you never would have had if you didn't get the dead flowers out of the way. 
I wanted to know more about pruning grapevines, so I went to Winemaker Magazine, as one does, um, and here's what I found out. Listen to this article. See if Jesus' choice of a vine makes sense. When they grow in the wild without a vineyard or, an, or a gardener, grapevines will flail around until they have something to grab onto. For a few years, it will grow slowly to establish a root system, and then it will begin to twist and tangle its way up a tree's trunk in an effort to get to the top and find a source of direct sunlight. You prune great branches to allow sunlight and air circulation to penetrate the fruit, and I loved this phrase in the article, to avoid rot and mildew. You prune to avoid rot and mildew. If you want flavorful, flavorful grapes full of color, you have to have a lot of sun exposure. And good sun exposure is impossible without pruning. Vines grow best when they are part of something bigger, like a vineyard. Growth is impossible without having something to attach to. It's impossible without parts of it being cut back. Let's be real. We do not like to hear this. God's going to do some work on me, and it's probably going to be painful. I'm tapping out. Thanks. But how often have you grown? Have you learned something new? Have you changed direction or behavior without difficulty? That's life. I want to be clear. I don't think pruning is the explanation for bad things happening in the world. I do not think God is going to give certain people a terminal illness to prune them. This is a broken, chaotic world, and we are all impacted by it in some way. But where pruning takes place is the places where Jesus comes into our lives and we allow him to move things around. Transformation happens when he gets rid of all of the crap that we are holding on to because we think it's going to give us a real life. When he's changing us inwardly and outwardly until we can finally just be real. More of who God created us to be. What are experiences when the rot and mildew have been exposed for you? Maybe it was a time when you thought, you know, I've, I've got it all figured out. And instead, you were extremely humbled because you realized how wrong you were. Or maybe it was the first time you discovered you are not as important as you thought you were. What? The world revolves around me. Or you were in a relationship that you're like, this is it. This is the one. We figured it out. And then it ends. Or you finally recognize how your selfish behavior is hurting the people you love. These, this is just a list of the ways that I have been pruned in my own life. But Jesus assures us we can still have hope. Pruning will create growth in us. That we will see life from a whole new perspective. Think about Jesus. Jesus. His pruning was the cross. But the reality of a miraculous life followed. And something just as amazing and fruitful is on the other side of every faithful experience of pruning that we might have in our lives. 
I have to make the point, though, that it is not the pruning in and of itself that helps us grow. We, can, we should never glorify pain and suffering as something that God wants for us. We need to name it for what it is. Pain sucks. Having crap cleaned out that needs to be cleaned out is not a pleasant experience most of the time. Jesus gives us a clue of this in verse 7. Um, if we can take a look at that again, Bailey, I think, yeah. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's his word that creates change in us. It is knowing Jesus more through scripture, through spending time with him. That's what cleanses us. That's what makes us more real, not our suffering. We can stand pruning. We can rejoice in suffering, not because it's hard, but because we have hope for the fruit that's on the other side. And we know that Jesus is at work in our lives. And when we are refined by God, we'll ask whatever we wish, but what we ask for is what God wanted for us in the first place. When I was in grad school in seminary, I spent some time living um, in Nairobi, Kenya. It was myself and another couple who were going to work with a different organization, and they were living close by. Um, And I was going there for five months, working with an American woman who started a foundation to care for um, single mothers who lived in the slums. And I was really excited. I'd always wanted to go to Africa, and I was stoked about what I was going to share with these women and children. And after a few weeks of being there, it was pretty clear that um, what I thought I could offer wasn't that useful. For some reason, my grad school Bible studies were not practical application for single mothers living in dire poverty. Weird, right? I know. I quickly realized I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing there, and I was discouraged. I was blue. (laughs) Not long after I arrived, the woman who was hosting me had to return to the U.S. for a family emergency, and she, she stayed there. And then I got this gnarly infection in my hand, and I had to go um, into emergency surgery in a Nairobi hospital um, at midnight. And um, I think I have a picture of, this is after my surgery, that was like the bandage on my hand afterwards, uh, which is one of the most crazy, intense experiences in my life, but that's not the point. But when I was in that hospital, after that surgery, completely alone, um... I realized I had never felt so alone in my life. And throughout that night, the anesthesia was wearing off, and I'd kind of wake up in this weird delusional state, and I would, I would yell for help to no one in particular, God, I guess. I would just yell for help. This was mad pruning, y'all, okay? <laughs> I, all of the pride and self-importance and superiority and the staunch, I don't need anybody, independence that I'd experienced up to this point was completely stripped away. It was cut back. And I was desperate for help, for hope. I was in Strugtown, and I was on a fast train to Desperation Junction, and if you've ever visited, those are not pleasant places to be. The morning, after, the morning, next morning, I woke up at the hospital, and Keith and Jen, the married couple, were there. And I remember just kind of opening my eyes and turning and looking at Jen, and what she said to, the first thing she said to me was, we want you to come home and be with us. 
And I remember, it wasn't an invitation. It, was, it wasn't, do you want to come home? It was, we want you to be with us. We want you to make your home with us. And I remember just a sense of, of relief and love and joy. I was crying, and I'm not a crier, especially tears of joy. So this was like, I can't even tell you what I was feeling. It was like a branch allowing itself to be held up by a vine. And that summer was one of the most difficult experiences of my life, but it also was a summer of the most intense growth I've ever known in knowing Jesus more. Jesus wants us to make our home with him. And when we allow that in our lives, we are changed forever. I want to read to you again what it says in verse 9. I don't think I have it on the screen. So just listen, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. We can only welcome others home when we found our home with Jesus. We can only offer hope when we know hope ourselves. We can only offer love when we know we are beloved. And we can only know growth, and produce fruit once we know we're connected to the vine. As we finish tonight, I want to just take a moment for you to reflect on your own heart as a place where Jesus wants to make his home. So just take a moment and close your eyes and consider the home of your heart. What's it look like? What's in there? Maybe Jesus has never been there before. You can invite him in. You can let Jesus make his home with you. Maybe Jesus is sitting in the living room where he has been a really long time waiting to spend time with you. Maybe Jesus can't even move because there's so much other stuff taking priority over him. What can you do to let Jesus truly be at home with you? Gracious God, we are so grateful that you gave us the real, true vine of Jesus. That we can be connected to the vine and know that we are held, that we are beloved, that we can remain in your love. God, help us make room for you. Help us move what needs to be moved. Be present in us and with us and remind us that you are for us and that you are in us. How grateful we are. In your precious name, amen.